You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 96, The Battle of Sullivan's Island. Way back in episode 82, we left British General Clinton off the coast of North Carolina, awaiting the arrival of an army of loyalists who never came, and a fleet carrying regulars from Britain who took forever to arrive. In January 1776, General Clinton had left British-occupied Boston and headed south. He first stopped in New York. In New York Harbor, Clinton conferred with several royal governors who had been ousted, but who were just sure that if the army raised its standard, thousands of their loyalist subjects would flock to support the king. This was also the visit that I mentioned back in episode 83, when Lord Drummond attempted to get Clinton to meet with peace commissioners from the Continental Congress, and Clinton refused. This was also the same visit I mentioned in episode 89, when Clinton simply told his old friend Charles Lee, now serving as a general with the enemy in the Continental Army, that he was planning to head down to the Carolinas and lead an attack there. After that conversation, Lee got himself transferred to command a Southern Army to oppose Clinton. So, Clinton, no more revealing your plans to the enemy, okay? After a lengthy stay, Clinton made his way down to Cape Fear in North Carolina, where he had expected to find an army of loyalists from the Carolina backcountry. London had also promised to send several regiments of regulars, led by General Cornwallis, who would become Clinton's second-in-command. Carrying the regulars would be a naval fleet under the command of Commodore Peter Parker. Now, this was long before Parker received a bite from a radioactive spider, so he had no special superpowers at this time, only decades of naval experience. The 55-year-old Commodore was the son of Admiral Christopher Parker. Peter Parker joined the Navy in 1735 at the age of 13 or 14. He served under Admiral Vernon, along with George Washington's older brother Lawrence, in the West Indies during the War of Jenkins' Ear. He saw considerable action in the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War before retiring from active service in 1763. A decade later, when troubles in the colonies created a need to increase the active navy, officials encouraged Parker to rejoin active service, granting him a knighthood and promoting Sir Peter Parker to the rank of Commodore. Later, Parker would become an admiral and would serve as a patron to a young up-and-coming officer named Horatio Nelson. But for now, Commodore Parker would share command with General Clinton. Parker carried plans from Lord Germain back in London. The plan had been to have Clinton and Cornwallis meet at Cape Fear. 
they would deploy their 2,000 regulars and provide arms to the local loyalists. Once the regulars restored order in North Carolina, as well as Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia, they would leave the loyalists in charge and meet up with General Howe in New York. I'm not sure exactly when Germain wrote those orders, but he seemed to have expected the whole mission to be wrapped up in time for Clinton, Cornwallis, and Parker to join General Howe sometime that spring in New York. Given that Clinton did not even receive these orders until May, chances of having everything done before summer were pretty much nil. But given that Howe was running behind schedule as well, Clinton did not think he needed to be in any special hurry to get back to New York. Clinton had arrived by March. By then, the rebels had already crushed the Loyalists at Moores Creek Bridge, meaning there would be no Loyalist army for Clinton to lead. Clinton found himself sitting off the coast with only a few companies of men that he had brought with him. General Cornwallis finally arrived on May 3rd, but thanks to stormy weather, the fleet continued to arrive slowly over the next few weeks, some not arriving until June. In the meantime, the soldiers had to remain aboard ship. They could not land anywhere without doing battle with the locals. The British conducted a series of coastal raids, mostly to collect food and supplies, but the men were getting sick with so much time aboard ship, and some of them were even beginning to die of scurvy because of the lack of fresh vegetables. Without loyalists rallying to their standard, there was not much Clinton's forces could do. Even if they captured some town or territory, they knew that they'd have to leave soon to assist Howe in New York. Without any local forces to leave in charge, any victory would have been pointless. While waiting for more ships to find their way to the rendezvous at Cape Fear, Clinton and Parker tried to find some place that they could have a military success. Parker indicated that London thought Charleston, South Carolina was particularly important. Clinton also received a message from Howe saying there was no hurry to return and also indicated the importance of securing Charleston. Clinton deployed a ship to reconnoiter Charleston from the sea. The officers reported back that the rebels were building a fort on Sullivan's Island at the mouth of Charleston Harbor. At the time of the survey, the fort was still under construction and not really ready for an attack. Up until then, Clinton seemed in favor of establishing a secure outpost on the Virginia coast. Parker, though, persuaded him of the value of taking Sullivan's Island. Even if they did not have the resources to capture all of Charleston, taking the fort before it was finished would prevent the rebels from securing Charleston Harbor and would provide the British with a launching point for a later attack against the city. By the end of May, Clinton received updated orders from Lord Germain that if he was not going to do anything to engage in military operations, he might as well head north and begin linking up with Howe. Clinton did not want to give up his independent command without having accomplished anything. He held a council of war to decide what action they might take. The council approved the attack on Sullivan's Island, and the fleet weighed anchor and headed south to Charleston. By June 1st, British ships were anchored outside Charleston Harbor. While General Clinton and the British fleet slowly moved toward Charleston, Continental General Charles Lee 
slowly made his way down to defend it. After Lee informed Congress about General Clinton's plans, Congress directed Lee to head a Southern command to stop Clinton. Lee spent some time in Philadelphia, then moved south, making waves wherever he went. In Baltimore, he ordered the arrest of Royal Governor Eden. The Annapolis Committee of Safety challenged his authority to make such an arrest. While they were arguing about it, Governor Eden jumped aboard a ship and sailed back to London. Lee then set up headquarters in Williamsburg, Virginia. There, he commandeered a building at William and Mary College that had been set aside for a military hospital, setting off more local protests. He also arrested and burned the homes of some Tory leaders. He ordered the removal of some other less influential Tories away from the coast. The Provincial Congress eventually supported these moves, but the imperious manner in which Lee acted bothered many Patriot leaders. By late May, Lee left for Charleston after determining that Clinton would likely attack there soon. Lee did not actually arrive until June 4th, a few days after the British fleet appeared outside Charleston Harbor. It's still not clear to me why the British just sat there and did not attack. Yeah, they were awaiting the arrival of some ships, but they still had plenty of men and ships already there and ready for the attack. Instead, they did little before beginning the attack four weeks after arrival. This only gave their men more time to get hungry and sicker on the ships, while the Patriots improved their defenses. On the American side, General Lee had brought with him 1,900 Continentals to supplement the local militia. One of Lee's first steps was to assert command over all militia and anything else he might need in defense of Charleston. After observing and evaluating the defenses, Lee decided that they should abandon Sullivan's Island. The wooden walls would not stand long against artillery fire. More importantly, the fort did not have a back wall yet. If the Navy simply sailed around the fort, they could wipe out the defenders, who would have nowhere to hide. There was also no way to retreat from the island if the British overran it. The defenders had a total of 31 cannon on Sullivan's Island. Another 15 Patriot guns sat across the harbor at Fort Johnson, compared with about 270 guns among the 50 British ships that were prepared to attack. Given the incomplete defenses, the smaller number of guns, and the lack of a line of retreat, it's easy to understand why General Lee thought they should not try to hold Sullivan's Island. Lee would not get his way, though. President of South Carolina, John Rutledge, argued that he commanded the state militia. North Carolina had created a new constitution in March. Before that, Rutledge had been a member of the Continental Congress. He was not ready to turn over command of his militia to Lee and the Continental Army, the same way colonials had done with the regulars in earlier wars. Rutledge sent a note out to Fort Sullivan's commander, saying that General Lee thought they should abandon the island. The commander, however, should not do so without an order from Rutledge, and that he would rather cut off his right hand than issue such an order. General Lee attempted then to build a pontoon bridge to the island using barrels and wooden planks. This would at least provide a line of retreat if needed but when he tried to send 200 soldiers over the bridge, it broke apart and was a complete failure. 
Out on Sullivan's Island, Colonel William Moultrie commanded a group of over 400 militia. As I said, they had 31 cannons and about 10,000 pounds of gunpowder. This was a good amount for the Patriots, but not really enough for a multi-day artillery battle. On June 7th, British General Clinton sent a messenger under a flag of truce to the Patriot lines. A militiaman fired on the messenger, who returned without delivering the message. The next day, Patriot leaders had to send an apology to General Clinton for firing on a flag of truce and allowed him to send a messenger that following day. Clinton's message, though, was really a non-starter. It simply called on the rebels to lay down their arms and surrender. And that was not going to happen. That same day, June 8th, General Clinton, along with Cornwallis, landed 2,200 regulars on Long Island, just to the north of Sullivan's Island. The British plan was to ford the men across a shallow sandbar to Sullivan's Island. They would then march down to the south end of the island and attack Fort Sullivan from behind. When General Lee got word of this, he sent a note to Colonel Moultrie to have him move two of his field cannon to the north end of the island. They would use this to prevent any British landing. It took two days for Moultrie to get the note, but he still had time to move the cannon into place before the slow-moving British attempted any assault. Lee also ordered Moultrie to continue building up the back wall of the fort to defend against an assault. Moultrie never got around to that. Lee himself was focused on the defense of the town of Charleston. He feared Clinton could march his army from Long Island to make a direct land assault on Charleston, bypassing the island defenses entirely. But the swampy land between Long Island and Charleston would have made any direct assault impossible. More than a week passed before anything else happened. Clinton planned to move slowly and deliberately, not relying at all on speed or surprise. On June 17th, Clinton made his first attempt to ford soldiers across to Sullivan's Island. He discovered, to his frustration, that the sandbar at low tide was not 18 inches as expected, but more than 7 feet deep. His army simply could not cross the ford to get to Sullivan's Island. By this time, the Patriots had assembled over 6,500 soldiers. Most of these remained with Lee in Charleston his 1,900 Continentals, as well as about 4,000 South Carolina regulars and militia. Then there were Moultrie's 400 defenders on Sullivan's Island and a few other crews on surrounding islands. Lee remained primarily concerned about a direct assault on Charleston. He did not realize the British only had the limited goal of seizing Sullivan's Island. Lee still considered the island indefensible. Although the fort could have accommodated a thousand defenders, Lee would not send over any more troops. He figured anyone there would simply be killed or taken prisoner. No need to add to those losses. On the evening of June 27th, Lee decided to relieve Colonel Moultrie of command and send over a Continental officer to take control of Fort Sullivan. More than likely, once that Continental officer was in command, he would order a withdrawal from the island. But before Lee could replace Moultrie, the British finally acted. On the morning of June 28th, the British Navy began its bombardment of Fort Sullivan. 
Commodore Parker's attack, however, quickly ran into problems. First, Parker had two ships lobbing bombs and mortars into the center of Fort Sullivan from a distance. Because he anchored the ships too far away, they had to use larger amounts of powder. The loads were so large that they ended up destroying the deck of one of the ships, taking it out of commission. The explosives lobbed into the fort mostly sank into the soft sand before exploding, thus greatly reducing their destructive effect. Next, Parker spent four of his largest ships, with a total of over 150 cannon, to level the fort walls. Again, the British met with frustration. The walls of the green palmetto logs were soft wood, with about 16 feet of sand and mud between the inner and outer walls. British cannonballs simply pushed through the logs, which did not splinter, and sank into the sand, doing almost no damage. During the naval attack, Clinton attempted to use boats to move his troops from Long Island to Sullivan's Island. However, the Patriot defenders used their two cannon to fire on the landing craft. On the mainland, Continentals also used cannon to put the British landing craft in a deadly crossfire. Since the British did not have enough boats to overwhelm the defenders, the attack broke and the regulars returned to Long Island. After that one attempted assault, General Clinton gave up on any attack by the army and sat out the rest of the battle. The defenders at Fort Sullivan returned fire against an overwhelming cannonade from the Navy that lasted all day. But surprisingly, they took few casualties. Colonel Moultrie's biggest fear was running out of ammunition. He had to slow down his return fire in order to conserve powder. By around noon, Parker ordered three of his ships to pass around behind the fort so that they could fire on the defenders where the walls remained incomplete. This, too, ended in frustration, as the ships could not get over a sandbar. Two of the ships retreated, but one of them, the Actian, got stuck there and had to be burned the following morning. The Patriots actually boarded the burning ship, fired some of its cannon at the enemy, removed some supplies, and abandoned it only minutes before the powder magazine exploded. The Navy did not attempt again to get around behind the fort. Instead, they continued to batter the front, which was proving useless. In the afternoon, General Lee rode out to Sullivan's Island to see how things were going. I think he expected to see the soldiers ready to flee the field, but he found dogged defenders not having much problem defending the fort. After a 15-minute inspection, he returned back to Charleston. During the battle, Moultrie flew his now-famous blue flag with a white crescent moon and the word Liberty written on it. At one point, the British shot down the flag, but the defenders quickly raised it again. Later, this would become known as the Moultrie flag. The firing continued until around 9.30 p.m. Later that evening, the British fleet pulled back to a safe distance. The Fort Sullivan defenders suffered only 12 dead and 25 wounded despite the British expending over 34,000 pounds of powder. Later, more than 7,000 British cannonballs would be dug out of Sullivan's Island. The British had lost one ship entirely, the Acteon, and had many others damaged. They suffered 63 dead and 157 wounded. Parker himself received a minor knee injury. 
Royal Governor William Campbell also received a leg wound. Campbell had intended to sit his government on Sullivan's Island and become a rallying point for Tories. Instead, his wound would contribute to his death two years later. General Clinton and his British regulars remained on Long Island for another week or two as he and Parker decided what to do next. Instead of renewing the fight, they packed up and set sail for New York, where they would rejoin General Howe's army. Clinton especially would spend much of the next year or two trying to explain why the loss at Sullivan's Island really wasn't his fault and that he did not even want to attack there in the first place. As the commander of Fort Sullivan, William Moultrie became an instant hero. South Carolina renamed Fort Sullivan Fort Moultrie in his honor. He would receive a commission as a general in the Continental Army later that year. General Lee, despite the fact that the Patriots won only by continually defying his orders, also received credit for the victory. This credit would only stoke his ego and contribute to his view that he should replace Washington as commander of the Continental Army. In fact, Lee was right about Fort Sullivan being indefensible. The Patriots won only because three things that no one foresaw. The fort walls being virtually indestructible against cannon fire, the inability of General Clinton to get his army from Long Island to Sullivan's Island due to the deep water, and the inability of Commodore Parker to get his ships behind the fort due to shallow water. Had any one of these three things gone differently, the battle would have almost certainly been a British victory. Of course, whether the British could have held the island as an outpost without committing way too many resources is another question entirely. But we won't have to answer that question because Sullivan's Island became an unqualified Patriot victory and an embarrassing British defeat. Next week, a political coup in Philadelphia sets the groundwork for Pennsylvania becoming a key state in the move for independence. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply hi thanks for coming to another american revolution podcast book recommendation This week, I want to give a shout-out to the podcast's Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vandenberg. I mentioned last month that Mark runs a production company called The Colonial Theater on the Air. It produces great audiobooks on a wide range of topics. I've been drawn especially to their great historical fiction. 
In talking to Mark, I learned that he got into this work after many years as a Revolutionary War reenactor. His love of history and attention to historical accuracy definitely shows in his work. As I mentioned last month, I really enjoyed their series on Ticonderoga. It's an action-adventure story that takes place in upstate New York during the French and Indian War. If you listen to it, you'll notice how well they integrate into their story actual events from the war that I covered in this podcast. You can check out this story and others at their site, colonialradio.com. There's also a link on my website, amrevpodcast.com. And any of their works can be purchased through iTunes, Audible, or on CD from Amazon. Also, one other announcement. For anyone who lives in the Philadelphia or South Jersey area who listens to this podcast during release week, Dave Salvatore, the podcaster behind Today in American Revolution History, is going to give a live presentation on Fort Billingsport, which was part of the Delaware River defenses during the Revolution. If you can make it, the presentation will be at the Greenwich branch of the Gloucester Library at 7 p.m. on Thursday, May 16th. And if you didn't get a chance to write down those details, I will post them on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Okay, so today we looked at the battle for Sullivan's Island. Given this was a small island and the British dominated the water around it, it is rather shocking that the British could not take the island. It is a profound embarrassment that's going to bother the heck out of General Clinton for years to come. He really cannot accept that his first independent command in America is a complete disaster. After leaving Charleston in failure, he has to return to New York as General Howe's second-in-command and will not get another chance to be a leader for several years. The American win also means that the southern colonies are not going to face a serious invasion from the British for many more years. The British will focus on the middle colonies until the end of 1778. On the American side, General Charles Lee gets credit for the win as overall American commander. But as I said, the Americans won mostly by ignoring just about everything Lee said. As a result, William Moultrie emerges as the real hero of the battle. So this week I wanted to go with an online resource that was a great help to me when researching events in North and South Carolina during the war. Carolana.com, that's with an A, not an I, does a wonderful job of documenting some of the most obscure events of the war, as well as the less obscure ones. The site creator, J.D. Lewis, is an amateur historian with an obvious passion for Carolina history. His site is meticulous and thorough. If you are looking for anything related to North or South Carolina history, you should definitely check it out. Again, that's carolana.com. My book this week also ties into the subject of this week's episode. The book is Crescent Moon Over Carolina, William Moultrie and American Liberty by C.L. Bragg. I think this is the only full-length biography of Moultrie, who not only goes on to be a major general during the war, but also has a political career that leads him to become governor of South Carolina. The book is engaging and thorough. At just under 300 pages, not counting extensive notes and index, it digs into Moultrie, the man, but also covers the revolution in the South 
and also the early years of South Carolina state politics. Bragg has written at least three other books, one other on the Revolutionary War era and two in the Civil War era. He also wrote an article for the Journal of the American Revolution about the Battle of Sullivan's Island. I've cited that article in my blog notes if you want to read it. Chip Bragg is an amateur historian. He actually has a day job as an anesthesiologist, but he clearly has a passion for early American history and has done a wonderful job with this work. If you want to learn more about William Moultrie, you will want to get this book. One other quick book mention this week. Rick Atkinson's new book, The British Are Coming, is releasing on Tuesday, May 14th. This is the first book in a planned trilogy covering the entire American Revolution. The first book covers Lexington through Princeton. I can't formally recommend it because I haven't gotten a copy of the book yet but I hear good things about it, and you may want to give it a look when it comes out later this week. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.